Welcome to the State of Everything Extra, Tim. This is where we talk to the fund manager, Tim Price of PriceValuePartners.com. How's it going, Tim? Hi, Paul. How's things? Very good. Thanks. Very good. And we should start with questions, I think, because we've got got some really good ones, actually. And I have to apologise to A.T. Busser on Twitter because he asked this question a while back and it got missed. And that's a point I'd like to make. If anyone's asked a question that we haven't answered, it's just have slipped through the cracks. So just send it again and remind us and uh, we'll, we'll get it asked. So just want to thank you for the great content you keep putting out. Really enjoyed all the episodes and they've made my lockdown and doing my master's thesis here in the Netherlands a lot more bearable. Well, thanks very much for that. Checks in the post. A question from me. Being a student, I don't have much in the markets, but I have a fair slice in Southeast Asia. I know Tim has been bullish on countries like Vietnam. What is your outlook for the next few years on this region? I'm slightly concerned that countries like Taiwan, South Korea, even Japan will come under increasing pressure from an aggressive Beijing. A Trump re-election pursuing more cronyism at home and more isolationist policies. Uh, may leave them out in the cold, geopolitically speaking. I mean, all good questions, all, all, all valid questions. I don't. I mean, I, I don't claim to be an expert in the sort of geopolitics of that part of the world, but I, I'm still. Where to cut to the chase? I'm still hugely bullish on prospects for Asia in uh, at large and, and Southeast Asia in particular, and the reason is uh, as, as well articulated by James Hay, who manages a fund called Pangolin. He may need to change the name of his fund, having said that. It's uh, not most politically correct uh, nomenclature to have something that may or may not be this, uh, the cause of this uh, global pandemic and is clearly an endangered uh, species to boot. But James makes the point that basically throughout Southeast Asia and particularly the sort of the ASEAN so Association of Southeast Asian Nations countries, the people just want to get on with it. So you, you couldn't have a more clear demarcation between let's say, the old world, particularly Europe, uh, which is sort of stagnant, ex-growth, high welfare state, et cetera, et cetera. And then like the Asian economies, which are basically younger, more dynamic, less burdened by the cost of welfare provision. And bluntly, as, 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 as James Hay puts it, you know, these, these guys all want, you know, a car and a house and, you know, to raise children and have high cholesterol like the rest of us. But he's absolutely <laughs> right. I think you're going to see there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a map, a global map that we've used that we, we liberated from Samarang funds. They, they, when they had a presentation for their first fund back in November 2012, it's a global map showing you the, the size of the current middle class population by region as defined by the OECD. And then there's uh, a wide, a, and, and the size of the, it's, it's difficult to convey uh, orally, but basically imagine a world map and then you have circles denoting the size of the middle classes by region. So the regions are North America, South America, Europe, Africa and Asia. So the, the middle class circle in North America is big because it's that denotes the size of the current middle class because it's a mature economy. It's already a mature economy. So it's big middle class and it's forecast to grow a tiny bit over the next 10 years. And then Latin America is a tiny circle because it's comparatively poorer, but it's forecast to grow a bit. Europe is the same as the States. It's a big circle of middle class, but it's not forecast to grow at all. In fact, I would argue that the, the, the Europe, even before COVID-19, was in, was in a depression, certainly in a recession. Africa, again, small circles, but forecast to grow a bit. And then, and then drum roll, you look at Asia. 
And Asia is a reasonably sized circle, but it's clearly a, an emerging power. But it's it's its future circle, and there's a circle denoting its anticipated middle class population. It looks like an atom bomb going off. It's so much bigger than basically any other area in the world. And let's not forget, in that region, you're already looking at something like a third of the world's population. So you've got all these you've got all these tailwinds behind you. Asia's clearly a big a big term, and there's obviously lots of different lo local variation. But if you treat Asia as one, you know, one single specific homogeneous thing, then you've got basically relatively young populations outside uh, Japan and China, uh, relatively young populations, hardworking populations, a good work ethic, as I say, little or no welfare provision. So as far as economic growth is concerned, that's a good thing. And these people just want to get ahead. So I, we were going to get round to this anyway on this call. But the thing that the most one of the things that most disturbs me is you look at the West is basically tearing itself apart over the most fatuous of causes, namely social justice warrior woke signaling over the you know the the the, the, the sort of race race problems that the states has got. And it's like we've got have we got nothing better to do now. Admittedly, that's because everyone's under lockdown. It's it's like dry tinder. It's a very potentially flammable situation. But notwithstanding that, we're just navel gazing and agonising over supposed um, bad things continually being done to racial minorities. Whereas in the rest of the world, particularly in Asia, they just want to get on with things and make money. So that you know, we we can indulge in this stuff at our peril. But these guys have got a a far more straightforward objective which is make money and prosper and get rich right so 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 in other words to answer that question although there's clearly going to be um a trend towards i mean i think the biggest trend to be braced for over the next few years now in light of the covid crisis is going to be reshoring in other words it's going to be a reversal of globalization and if that's the case, because we know the Japanese, for example, have spent, I'm trying to think of the precise figure. I know it's over a billion dollars. The Japanese government has spent over a billion in, in, in basically loans or grants to Japanese companies to bring them back to bring them back home. Yeah. So and that, that trend is going to continue elsewhere. So it's not going to be limited to Japan in isolation. Um, so the if that trend is as sort of overarching a grand sort of macro theme as I suspect, and it, this is certainly not new news to anybody because it's been well discussed over the last few months, then a lot of the things that you associate with globalization, things like you know low inflation or de disinflation, um, in other words, it's a huge swathe of cheap goods coming over from Asia and, and particularly, of course, China. All that kind of goes, maybe not in, into the reverse, but it, it, it certainly it certainly is dented. So a lot of things that we've been used to for the last 10, 20, 30 years aren't going to be as profound anymore. And if nothing else, that leads me to suspect that our, our sort of base case call for higher inflation is, is likely to happen. Might not be such a bad thing. Um, I mean, in, in, in many in many respects, I think it is going to be a good thing. I mean, we try not to let, I try not to let sort of moral ethical, you know, wokey type stuff influence what we do. Because at the end of the day, our, our, our bottom line is basically, if it's legal, we'll consider investing in it. And if it's not illegal, we obviously won't. But it's not up to us to make value judgments on behalf of our investors and our clients. So you can you can do a lot of posturing from an environmental, social and governance perspective, i.e., you know, ESG. But at the end of the day, all of these things are wildly subjective. And when it comes to China, you know, we've never invested in China. We never likely will invest in China. But the first reason for that is because China's never been cheap. The Chinese stock market's never been cheap enough for us. And then, of course, now there's a second order 
uh, effect, which is, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party is one of the most evil regimes on the planet. So why, why would anyone wish to support that, given that the valuation argument doesn't underpin the market anyway? So the question also asks whether we had seen Princes of the End. I've seen it, but I don't think you've seen it yet. So without giving the game away, what, what's the essential thrust? It, it's basically about how the system has been completely manipulated. It, it's, uh, it's to cut to the chase, it's, it's the sort of the, the, the basic conclusion that the rest of the world is turning into Japan from a policy perspective. No, no, it's just how, how much... How, how, much how, recent is it? how recent is it as a documentary? Well, it, it's... Was it was in the nineties? It based okay. it, yeah throws a new light on what central banks are doing potentially. I mean, certainly what they were doing, but it, it was the ultimate control that they had over the Japanese system, and how they were trying to control the banks by forcing them to either lend or not lend, mm. and then actually engineering a correction that then was hugely profitable, but for only certain businesses. It was, it's very timely given what... I mean, I would, I would also interrupt, or I would also be wary of drawing too many sort of global conclusions from Japan, because Japan is a very specific culture. Yeah. In other I... words, what, what works in Japan won't necessarily work elsewhere. And the, the example I'd cite would be after the, you know, after the, the twin disaster of the earthquake and the tsunami... Do you remember how much writing you saw taking place in Japan? The answer is none, because there wasn't any. No, th this, now, this, if the yeah. same thing had happened in America, you know, it would yeah. have been it would have been a disaster, a literal disaster. Th this is this isn't a Japanese people and their stoic nature and their. No, but I'm saying but, it is all it is all of a part though, because it, even though you're talking about maybe the institutions, namely the the Bank of Japan and you know, the, the the Japanese government, nevertheless they can get away with policies because of that social cohesion that other other countries would struggle to achieve. I think you should just watch it and yeah, then yeah. and then that, 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 what, that, would, that would make a lot of sense rather than yeah. expressive on something I've never seen. Yeah, it would it would be good and having Richard Werner on would be absolutely amazing. So yeah, we will well, try that would be my project then my yeah, project. We will try and get him on. Uh, that would that would be great. So another question from YouTube um, I'm curious to know if either Tim or Paul would consider it a necessity for journalists to be licensed. If you if you get caught publishing a story, say, that's an out-and-out -out lie, you are permanently suspended. Do you think that's a good idea? And what do you think the outcome would be of a system like that? Also, along the same lines, how about politicians passing a basic economics test? We have far too many politicians in office that spend and implement bad policies because they don't really comprehend the unintended consequences of their actions. On the second part of that, 110%. So I, I would be all for a sort of minimum, a minimum entry threshold to, to stand for parliament, let alone getting into parliament and let alone getting into the cabinet, but simply, you know, a sort of basic... You know, basically, you know, an examination type test, which, which, you know, if you don't pass it, you don't, you don't get to put your candidacy forward. Um, another thing I would add to that mix would be on the second question would be um, balanced budget provisions. So, in other words, some, you know, that the, the, the one of the big dangers at the moment is that so many governments uh, and the monetary bodies are printing so much money so quickly. You know, you, you, there's a line in um, Apocalypse Now. Um, where it says in you know in, in 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 Saigon the bullshit piled up so quickly you needed wings to stay above it, um, and it's the same with monetary policy. The money printing that you know the money printer going burr is happening so quickly that you know you just the the figures are, be, are becoming so meaningless. Yes, that it's difficult to see them in the real world because you're just talking about hundreds of billions and trillions. It's like 
how many zeros is that? And the, the figures are so overwhelming, they, they, they stop having any relevance in a real world context. Uh, so I'm absolutely, absolutely for, 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 for the second part. On the first part, I'm not sure, to be honest, one of the guys I most rate on Twitter, for example, is Naval Ravikant, and he doesn't have a blue tick. And he consciously said that, you know, it's not for, it's not for Twitter or it's not for, yeah, it's not for Twitter, basically, to be sort of a, you know, judge on, on this stuff. It's a free speech thing. So I, I think the libertarian in me said, you know, it probably errs on the side of just letting a kind of like free market and ideas flow. But there does have to, there's clearly the social, the social media sector is imperfect because there seems undoubtedly to be some, you know, fairly, fairly significant bias on the part of the, these platforms, whether it's Twitter or whether it's Facebook, which I don't personally use. In other words, they've got an agenda. There's quite clearly a political, again, sort of wokey type agenda being peddled here. And it seems to me that these 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 platforms have been able to get away with sort of having their cake and eating it because they're they're sort of responsible for the content that appears, but but clearly they've delegated the ultimate um, responsibility to the individual authors. I would probably be more in favor of simply making it Again, the libertarian in me says everyone should be able to post anonymously. I think it would raise the caliber of the debate if people on social media were forced to use their own names because that would stop some of the mud flinging, some of the sort of casual racism, insults, all the rest of it. But should we discriminate between social media, journalism and, and the traditional kind? I think traditional kind is dying on its ass. I think part of the problem is that it's not it is some journalists but it's actually the editors that decide what gets printed yeah. and then you could actually extrapolate that out to the search engine stroke media platforms that the editors are algorithms and imperfect in how they decide who or what gets gets published so I think there's there's it's a very good question how how do you keep journalists and editors honest well, you let it, the market decide. You let we, the market decide and try yeah, not to interfere as much as possible. Yeah, but part of that problem is that how do you keep a fund manager honest? Well, the market does that. How do you keep an editor honest? It's very difficult to then prove. Um, but I suppose via the legal system, if they're printing something that's that's not right, but that, that it's more subtle than that. So mm. it's trying to make them kind of responsible. I think one reason why people are upset about media bias, that, that it quite clearly exists, I mean, just in the UK, it quite clearly exists on all of our mainstream media, is that you have people who are traveling under the cloak of journalism, but they're quite clearly, you know, giving you an editorial line. Yeah. And we have, you have to try and separate those two things. So, yes. you know, in the, in the, in the newspaper and magazine world, you have know a news column which everyone you know basically understands ought to be objective and as far as that's possible because obviously every publication has an editorial slant one way or another but that's fine because at least you know that bias exists and then you can make your choice accordingly in terms of what papers you consume yeah but it's when you blur the line so you have and again the bbc people are a past master at this which is you have people who are ostensibly claiming to be journalists but they're quite clearly peddling an uh uh, a, a an explicit editorial line, and that's that's muddying the water for everybody. Yes. So you, they're saying, well, is, is this news or is this commentary? And well, the answer is they they they're, they're providing both. So another part of the problem, I think, with with regard to stories, is monetization. So yeah. if you are able to monetize a story from a, an unreputable site, that's because 
why was that why is that person doing it why why are these stories being put out that aren't true well the best way that the press knows about getting stories out there is to be controversial so if mm. you peddle bad news that sells and therefore twitter and all the other platforms know that so therefore the more controversial and aggressive and angry you get people the more money you're going to make and that i think is is what needs to stop you have to you have to stop being paid to put stuff out that that actually just causes more and more hate between people and more and more stuff that that's not not even fact-checked so i would i would like at least a large part of what twitter comprises to survive because i think twitter as a concept is, is is on the side of the angels here the reason i i'm such a fan is that it's it to my in my experience it's the closest thing that the internet has provided to date to being the so-called daily me in other words the thing that, that any individual can curate for themselves and it gives you as far as realistically possible in this world or effectively almost infinite choice so you can follow who you like, uh, unfollow and block who you like. You know, it's a complete free for all, and it's like a kind of a, you know, it, it's 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 an almost perfect town square of public debate. And clearly, there are sort of people in the peanut gallery, myself included, from time to time, sort of lobbing squibs at things. But in in general, you can't really blame. You know, if if you know, if you take issue with someone that you follow, well, you're following them. Yeah. So there's an easy remedy there. Yes, I, I I think that that makes a good point. I mean, I, you can curate and end up in a hyper-normalized environment within Twitter, and that's absolutely fine. That should yeah, be it's your... like confirmation bias is a, is a huge problem, but the, the you know, it, 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 the, what, what, I, what I really welcome is the, the, the absolute wealth of, of, of choice on there. And, you know, so I, I inhabit, I suppose, you know, part of it's sort of finance Twitter and part of it's sort of politics Twitter, and then part of it's just having a joke Twitter. Um, but there's all these different little sort of, you know, highways and byways and it's like all human life is there you just have to find it and then if you can sort of prune and cultivate your you know your the, the people you follow appropriately then it's 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 so much more engaging than any other medium yes but where you get dangers is when news gets inverted commas news is passed but it's around. kind of like flat flash mob culture isn't it that you have a, a specific event like say the murder of this you know black guy in in the states and then there's a pylon and everybody suddenly it, it turns into a, like a, a riot yeah, in, I, 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 as a media platform, I don't mean that so much. I mean, what I mean is fake news. I mean, mm. I, things things like there could be a story that that Trump thinks this and said something that he actually hasn't said, and therefore, I, I used, and that could I, that could be a story that I used to read. I mean, when I was a, a student at school, and then you know, well, not so much at college, but certainly at school, I used to I used to be into the sort of theater theater of the absurd, these likes of Harold Pinter and you know, um, so on and so forth, you know, the waiting for God and all that, all that stuff. And there's a Pinter quote I, I can remember in a textbook. And I've been trying to find it for for year, for decades now, and I can't find it. But it goes something like this. Imagine two, two, a couple walking down the road and they see, I think it's maybe a traffic accident. Even though they both saw exactly the same thing, when they talk about it, when they relate the story both of them will have a slightly different tale to tell yeah and that's as close as you can get to you know basically a story that ought to be identical for on, on the part of both witnesses in other words what he's essentially saying is there is simply no such thing as objective truth 
everybody has a slightly different take. Everybody has a slightly different angle. So the idea of there being some, the, if the, the idea that there's some kind of pure news out there is itself something of a fallacy. Yes. Uh, but, but I guess there's different degrees in which that can be pushed. So, for example, if if it was a man driving the car and, and there was a woman passenger and somebody yeah, says, some, somebody some, says some, no, some that facts, wasn't a... Some facts can be undeniable, exactly. Yeah. And some can be open to interpretation and, you know... Yes. Debate. Yes. No. That, that's. I mean, that's a good point. And there's a phrase that I really like. There's three sides to every story: yours, mine, yeah. and yours, mine, and the truth. Yeah. But it. I think it, it does come down to monetization because the the main media platforms are in trouble and they're flailing in a way that, it, it, like I think we were saying on a different podcast about how they they seem to attach themselves to wokey type agendas uh, because they because they think that's popular. And in the long, that might work in the short term, but they're not there to get short term clicks. They're there for, to get long term, you know, people to, to to engage, and that's where they're they're undermining themselves. So I, think how, you, how you, I think if you want to get the the highest quality journalism, for want of a better word, or commentary, then you have to bite the bullet and say, look, you have to pay for it. So in other yeah. words, the the, 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 the the sort of the monetized world of of clicks and hits and eyeballs and all the rest, it's all well and good, but for my money, um, the, one of the finest magazines published in the English language is The Spectator. Yeah. And it's something I'm happy to pay for in a way that I'm not happy to pay for, for example, The Times. So I've just cancelled my subscription there because I just – and I've also cancelled my subscription to um, Private Eye for, for, this, for very similar reasons, namely their reflexive, boring, infantile, unfunny – constant criticism of Cummings in particular and Brexit in general is just getting on my nerves. So I'm thinking, well, I'm not paying for it anymore. And, but, but then you pay for what you want. Yeah. And the, the beauty of something like the spectator, I don't know if you get it, Paul, but uh, is that it has, it's a bit like Twitter. It, I mean, that's a, a, in a sense a crass comparison, but it's a bit like Twitter to the extent that it, it allows all kinds of voices to be heard. So although it has its own sort of, like editorial bias, it doesn't prevent other columnists from 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 venting freely that that have a completely different view, and the main reason they can get away with it because everybody on it writes well, and that's that's the bottom line. So I think that's ultimately the the, the final crucible, the the final test, which is um, now are you willing to pay for this stuff? And if you're not, then well, you have to you have to accept that you, you're going to get you're going to get get drowned in crap from time to time. I think makes a good point that actually the markets decide so eventually yeah. whatever gets rebuilt will be a different system and people will end up choosing but it's constantly, I, it's constantly evolving but i mean i think we can probably both agree that the, the, the one of the, the the objectives is to have as much choice as possible as much yeah. choice and as little coercion but just to make a quick handbrake turn a, a screeching sort of in a 90 degree turn this is of course the reason why we're both interested uh, in varying ways w with um, technical analysis, because it's the one thing about the market that is indisputable. Yeah. We can debate the macro just as we can debate you know, the relative fortunes, uh, triumphs and tragedies facing, say, Asia or Southeast Asia as an investment area. But the bottom line is the price is the price is the price. And there's no, there's, you can't debate that. Yes, exactly. And, so that, and that's objective reality. That's objective truth. Yes. And I, I try to differentiate. I mean, I don't get involved in politics. I've said it many times. I just don't want to. It's, it's not something that I'm, I'm interested in because I, I think they're all pretty much the same. And I've got, I'm more interested in the markets and where the markets mm -hmm. are going. But I think it's an interesting exercise to, to think about how the media landscape will change and the political landscape could potentially change. And that was the other part of the question. 
I sometimes think, what do you do with politics? Do you get somebody in power and make them stay in power and sort of lie in their bed of whatever they've created for a very long time? Is that a good way of doing it? Or is it better to keep changing the parties and the leaders and everything else and let them keep handing over the crap to the other the other party to, to deal with and instigate very short-term policies that are popular in order to get in, but then just get out and leave a constant mess and, and have a have a system that's badly run over the long term. Perhaps some level of of planning mm. with some level of free market decision making that allows long-term projects to come into effect. And the reason why I'm saying this is like, for example, if if we decided, like if you were in power and somebody said, right, you know what we really need? Over the next 20 years, we're going to need more more power. So therefore, mm. we, we've got to start... More clean power. More clean power, and we need we need um, a better road network. But it's going to cost us a lot of money right and now. It's gonna take, and it's going to take decades to build. Exactly. Know, to build a power station, but so, I imagine it's not, not done overnight. Yeah, so how do we do that? And you say, well, actually, it's not very popular because people right now don't want it, but we know that they're going to need it. So how, how do you bring it into effect? Well, you might start it, and then you try to hand it over, and it sure. gets mothballed by the next poli- yeah. the next party. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. And, and so one answer could be, would be, for example, well... Why is the parliamentary term five years? Make it ten. But mm. then the the flip side to that debate. I think on, on balance we've got things broadly right, but obviously certain circumstances give rise to you know obvious failures. Um, so the the counter argument is if, if if someone's going going badly wrong, then you need to have the facility to to get them out and replace them with someone who can do it right yes. as quickly as possible. On, on this point, so this is a a letter to the FT that, that was published yesterday. It's quite brief. There seems to be an emerging consensus that the British government has made a hash of the COVID-19 crisis for want of an effective plan. This seems spectacularly unfair. Admittedly, from a safe distance, I've discerned a clear and methodical plan which seems to have been scrupulously followed throughout. The main stages were one, dither, two, panic, three, throw money at it, four, dissemble and distract, five, perform U-turns, six, clutch at straws. We are currently embarking on phase six with all previous phases now complete. Bravo. <laughs> and uh, he, he had me all the way uh, until this this last payoff line, which is following this triumph, forging a post-Brexit trade strategy should be a walk in the park. Um, but yes, so it's a shame that Brexit had to sort of, you know, re- re- rear its ugly head at the end. But other than that, I'm I'm kind of with the, with the, the writer of that letter that, the, the the UK government is having an absolute nightmare of a time. Yeah. And I think also there's a point that good leaders don't necessarily, aren't necessarily educated in something. They should just know who to listen to. I mean, yeah. you can't know everything, but I think a, a good understanding of economics and something that you and Dan Denning were, were talking about, critical thinking. How do we teach critical thinking? How do we teach critical thinking to politicians before the, the future politicians? I think, to be fair, you will find that Dominic Cummings, peace be upon him, has already written quite extensively about the failures of the system as it's currently set up in exactly these terms, that there needs to be a better preparation of politicians particularly those that get close to the you know the the real sort of sense of power in the cabinet uh, and at the moment the, the system seems dismally far from achieving that but that doesn't mean it can't be done it just means we need to think carefully about how we do it but uh, you know the, the the hashtag i'm going to wheel out now is, is is hashtag oxford ppe i'd say if there's one thing that should be 
almost banished from Parliament. It's people having that that degree because it's a complete waste of time and it gives you a, a spurious sense of overconfidence and knowledge and wisdom, you know, 100 miles across and, you know, 0.01 millimetres deep. I think the education system is is starting to, not itself, but I think the way people are educating themselves will change and is but starting this is, to this change. Is, this is also another one, and this is another disgrace. Uh, at the risk of sort of being a bit of a broken record, you you may remember when we had Jörgida Hulsman yes, on yes. the show, and I, one of us asked him, you know, if you could change one thing about the system, what would it be? And I think whoever it was asked the question was expecting something to do with, you know, reform central banking, reform money or something along those lines. He said, get the government out of the education business. Yes. And I was shocked by that. But, but, the, but the more I think about it, the more I think he's exactly on online. So with, with that exactly in mind, there was a tweet I saw this morning. We were told, this is by Bernie's tweet, we were told we were flattening the curve. Now we're flattening the economy and destroying children's education. This government <laughs> is weak beyond imagination. But it's absolutely right. And I'm saying, okay, perhaps the government should get out of the education business. And then perhaps the teachers union should also get out of the education business. You know, it is ridiculous. What's the, I think I saw a headline this morning. It is ridiculous that kids will be allowed back to Thorpe Park before they're ever allowed back into school. Yes, you know, yes. they've got this, they, they've got this horribly wrong. And to be fair, it's not necessarily purely the government. It's the teachers unions that are also to blame because, you know, uh, another headline I saw this morning from the Telegraph was, I think it was along the lines of, a child is more likely to die of being hit by lightning than of getting COVID-19. You know, the, the unions need to bloody grow up. Yeah. As it is, they, they're having like the world's longest ever holiday. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think this is being motivated by the interests of the people and their care. It's being the interest of self, selfishness and nothing else. Comes back down to what Taleb was saying about you have the people who are making the most effectively making the most noise i don't necessarily think it reflects what the teachers want to do it's just a small group that has an that held, a, held them to ransom yeah exactly so yeah absolutely um right so tim our 100th episode's coming up it is indeed do we want to tease a little bit about what might be on there uh let's just let's say it might be an entrepreneur entrepreneurial special one of the highest profile business people in the uk very proud to have him on and he recommended a book which we'll talk about obviously on the podcast but just ahead of it it's um how to lose a hundred million dollars and other valuable advice by royal little so i think we should give away a copy of that book so and i'd like to get your idea superb idea so we'll we'll get your signature on it and you know maybe your signature well i don't think people want that but anyway um i might put an x on it and we'll get we'll have to think of a way to uh, to give that away as a prize. So so that will be part of the hundredth episode, which we will release this coming Sunday, the fourteenth of June. Excellent, Tim. It's always a pleasure, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you once again for all your thoughts, and thank, thank you, you thank you for all your questions. They are absolutely brilliant. I think we still got some more to do, but we're going to do them on the next one. Just a final thought. We've had a few requests from people very kindly asking whether they could... Could you please shut up? (laughs) Yeah, there is that. Well, it's kind of the opposite, really. They're saying they want to support the channel, and that's very, very kind. And we are going to be putting content out on Patreon. So watch the space. We'll put links to that as they appear. There will definitely be an extra Tim and some other features as well so we will be populating that as soon as we can so once again thank you so much for listening thank you to tim stay safe and we'll catch you again next time bye bye bye
This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.